0: Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people into authentic and significant relationship with King Jesus. Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. If you want, you can say back, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Come on. Amen. Amen. I am in Acts 6 and 7. We're going to take one final look at uh, the death of Stephen. We're going through the book of Acts. Um, and I was just thinking as, I, as we unpack this this morning, if I was open and honest and sort of vulnerable with you all this morning, I would say that some of the greatest challenges in my spiritual journey have been when a pile up of negative things happen. You know what I'm saying? And so one of the just places where I have consistently found doubt, um, unbelief, um, hurt with God, bitterness with God, disappointment with God, frustration with God, disagreement with God is when one or multiple or even many sort of things happen that don't feel good or seem good to me. You know what I'm saying? Some of y'all are like, I can't believe he's saying this. That's right. We're real people around here. So the question sort of becomes, how do we process, how do we deal with something or some things when there's a pile up of things that don't fit within what we think is good? How do we deal with our own hearts? How do we process with God? How do we even look at our lives? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at Acts 6 and 7, specifically the death of Stephen. And I want to look at it from really four different angles, and then we're going to flip it and and call us sort of as a church to engage in some self-introspection and allow the Holy Spirit to sift our hearts. Sound good? All right. So here's what we're going to take a look at. Uh, We're going to take a look at Stephen's death being a coronation of life. I'll tell you about that in a minute. We're going to take a look at Stephen's death becoming condemnation. That's a big old Bible word um, for the nation of Israel. We're going to talk about uh, Stephen's death becoming liberation for the New Testament church. And then we're going to talk about Stephen's death becoming salvation for Saul the Pharisee. And then we're going to pivot and look at us and our call to be living sacrifices. Sound good? All right, here we go. Let's dig in. If you're scrolling, scroll away. I'm going to start in Acts 6, verse 8 through 10, and then we're going to skip over to Acts 7 and read the last portion there. As soon as we get through this section, we're actually heading into Acts 8, where uh, we talk about a guy named Simon the Sorcerer and Philip the Ethiopian, and then Saul comes to Christ. So lots of sort of wild things happening in the New Testament church, and we're just going to continue to roll through it. let me say one other thing here that I think could help set us up, because we're talking about a tragedy, a difficulty that God used for our good, for the church's good, and for His glory. Um, so, how do we look at something differently? Okay, so um, in uh, there was a, uh, an American entrepreneur. I just ran across this this week. His name was Robert Taylor. anybody ever heard of Robert Taylor? Somebody has. Wow. Okay. So Robert Taylor, as I read, um, he was fascinated by what happened when you took a bar of soap and washed your hands and then you set it on the counter and then washed your hands again and set it on the counter and washed your hands again and set it on the counter. And, and, And what happens? It gets oozy and gooey and yucky. You know what I'm saying? So this guy decides that he would look at that under a microscope, and do you know what was born? Nope. Close. Soft soap hand soap. He went, why are we having this oozy, nasty thing on the counter? Let's just put it in a nice jar and make it smell good. And then we just pump the hand soap and there we are. So here's what I'm I'm sort of being silly on that. But what I want to invite you into is if you are stuck in looking at a certain um, event or even tragedy or difficulty in your life a certain way, the oozy, gooey soap on the counter. Perhaps the Lord will use this to begin to upgrade your view into a kingdom perspective where he is calling you to see something, and he might even empower you to do something with what you've seen. Come on. That's kingdom, by the way. That's kingdom of God. Okay. So let's open up. I'm going to read Acts 6, uh, starting in verse 8. We're going to go through verse uh, 10, and then we're going to go to chapter 7. Um, I'm going to pick up in 51. We've been reading this the last few weeks. We talked about Stephen with forgiveness. We talked about Stephen as he preached on circumcision of the heart. Like, what in the world? Um, If you want to go back and listen to those. Today is um, sort of a perspective shift or a matter of perspective on the death of Stephen. So, here we go. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power. So Stephen was probably about 27, 28 years old, best guess. Um, He was commissioned as a deacon uh, to feed um, the widows who weren't getting enough food. But what's amazing is he's become a pretty powerful preacher. And I'm not going to read his whole um, message, but he's become this really powerful preacher. So young young guy, 28, um, full of God's grace and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9 opposition arose. Wherever Jesus is, by the way, what happens? Opposition arises. And In fact, I'd go so far to say is if you're not experiencing opposition at some point or points in your life, you may need to go, Lord, am I walking with you? And perhaps it's just a good season, welcome to a good season, but I assure you, opposition will come. Okay. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue. It's really interesting because opposition is arising from within the church. It's often where it arises. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, and who began to argue with Stephen. So these super religious, super educated, very intelligent people begin to argue with Stephen. And by all accounts, these guys who are 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old should absolutely smash and demolish the brains of this 28-year-old who's not nearly as educated. And yet, let's read what happens. Verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, how do you think that made them feel? It says at the end of chapter 7 that they were furious and gnashed their teeth. I mean, they were like rage-filled. Okay, so Acts chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse 51. This is the end of an amazing sermon. We're not going to read the whole thing. But Stephen now is looking at this great Sanhedrin of people, and he says, "...you stiff-necked people." Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. We took an in-depth look at that last week. If you weren't here, you can go back and watch it. But you always resist the Holy Spirit. Like, this is not what you want to be saying to the elders, right? Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Who? Jesus, you who who have received the law that was given through uh, angels but have not obeyed it. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Circle standing, if you're if you're in a paper Bible, um, or highlighted, if you're on your phone, uh, but we're coming back to that verse 60, uh, 56, look, Stephen said, I see heaven open and the son of man, who's the son of man, that's Jesus. That's Old Testament language coming right from the book of Daniel. Um, but the Son of Man, and that, that is not just a word for Jesus. It's it's word for Jewish Messiah, Savior of the world. It's, a, it's this massive label. So when, set, when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I am the Jewish Messiah. So Stephen is referring to him. I see heaven open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him. So let's read 58. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, uh, is this a fair trial? No. Uh, This is more like a mob killing. I mean, it's honestly, it's like, to, this is the, the supreme court of the land was the great Sanhedrin, and it's like they've engaged in a full mob killing. I mean, it's, it, they weren't even allowed to kill people under Roman law. So they were breaking Roman law, they're breaking their own great Sanhedrin and Mosaic laws, but they're so angry, uh, full of like wrath at him, they drag him out and they stone him. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's in the middle of dying. Then he fell down on his knees, and he cried out, "'Lord, do not hold this sin against them.' When he had said this, he fell asleep or died, and Saul approved of their killing of him. On that day, 8-1, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church." Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Father, I pray that as we unpack your word this morning, that you'd give us deep revelation into your heart, the heart of your people, your heart for the church, and then your heart for us. And Father, would you call us further and deeper into our own heart journey with you, our own Jesus journey. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Stephen's death, the first thing that I want to make the point of is, is as we sort of look at a matter of perspective or pivoting our sort of viewpoint, this, this, what is Stephen's death? So number one, Stephen's death is the coronation of life for him. What, what is coronation? Coronation is a Bible word and it means crowning. Okay, so uh, we're not gonna do it this morning, but I could take you through Genesis to Revelation, and we could look at Jesus uh, being coronated, or crowned um, king, and him actually being seated at the right hand of God the Father. So, scripturally, from Genesis to Revelation, you have God the Father, um, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are three in one, but they are three uh, also separate. So, Jesus, God the Son, King Jesus, is seated at the right hand of God, and and when Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, which we just read about a few chapters ago in Acts, you can go back and listen to those if you want. But when Jesus ascends into heaven and they see him go up on the clouds, he is taking his place, he is coronated as king of the universe, lord of heaven and earth, god of the angel armies, creator, and he takes his place seated at the right hand of God. Now, we could go through the entire scripture and I could show you point after point after point, and he is always seated. Seated. It's very important. He is seated because everything in the Christian life has already been accomplished. He is seated, and therefore, uh, we are seated, Ephesians actually tells us, in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. In other words, everything in this Christian life is meant to be lived from a place of victory, from a place of rest, from a place of the finished work of the cross of Christ. It is from this position where all has been done, all has been won, all has been, and it will and and continue to be established on the earth until Jesus finally returns, okay? Okay? So, now here's the amazing thing and why I would say that this is a coronation of life for Stephen. Um, and if we if we dug up some of the ch- stuff from church fathers, we would see that Stephen is a young man. He's often depicted as beardless in some of the original art. So he could have even been younger than 28. He could have even been 25. So again, you get this idea um, that, that God has chosen someone who is young, um, who did not have the learning and education, who was a deacon. He is used awaiting tables um, for destitute widows. That's what he does. And God raises him up and commissions him to be this powerful preacher. Uh, And then, here's what's absolutely amazing, is as Stephen is dying, he looks up into heaven, and what does he see? Now, this is really important. Jesus, in all of Scripture, is what? He's seated, okay? And Stephen looks up, And he's in the middle of being clobbered with stones and and dying. Blood is coming down his skull, probably his body. He is in the process of dying. Does he have time to make up or fabricate something? No. So he is in this moment, he looks up into heaven and he says, behold, I see Jesus seated. Standing. Okay, so here's what I want you to grab. God Almighty, like Jesus, is seated because it's from this finished position, finished work of the cross of Christ Jesus. But Jesus, for the first martyr, Stephen, who was being killed, actually arises from his seat and moves towards his son. So you get this idea of God Almighty who cares for what Stephen is going through, who cares for the pain that he is in physically, emotionally, spiritually, who cares maybe for the fear or anxiety that he's actually feeling in this moment. So Jesus, first of all, stands and moves towards him, but then secondly, this is a welcoming of Stephen into the kingdom, it's the coronation, it's the crowning of Stephen. So Stephen is literally claiming his crown, his eternal crown, his blessing, And God Almighty stands like a standing ovation to welcome his son home. It's like, I wonder how many people God stands for to welcome them into the kingdom. But for this young man on this particular day, he arises arouses himself out of his throne and he stands up and moves towards Stephen with everything in him and then welcomes him into the eternal kingdom of God. It's the coronation or the crowning of Stephen. If you go, Michael, why are you saying crowning? I'm referencing 1 Corinthians 9:25. If I'm not gonna turn there, but if you want to make a note, 1 Corinthians 9:25, Paul is writing. Who orchestrated and witnessed the killing of Stephen? Saul. Saul's name is changed to Paul. We're about to see all this. And then Paul later pens, uh, writes 1 Corinthians 9.25, and it says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we as Christians, as Jesus people, do it to get a crown that will last forever. I can only imagine that when Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, he is actually sitting at his, wherever he was in this moment, and he, as he's penning it and as he's writing it, he is thinking of Stephen as he is standing there having orchestrated the death of this young man. He is watching blood come down this young man's head. He is uh, approving and standing there sort of having rallied and, and whipped everybody up, and he is watching, and all of a sudden he sees Stephen looking highward, he, or heavenward, he hears Here's what Stephen says, and he says, behold, I see the the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, standing, and I think Paul all of a sudden begins to put it together as he looks back after having come to Christ, that, oh my goodness, he is receiving the crown of life. This is, um, uh, theologically, I'm not gonna fully open this, it's another sermon for another time, but uh, this is no longer about being saved. In other words, um, this is past being saved. This is what you do with what's now been entrusted to you. So we're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. It's about who you know, Jesus and Jesus alone, right? But there's a second sort of judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ, and it it's not a judgment of, Death or hell or condemnation. It's more like a judgment of reward. And so when, when Jesus stands to welcome his son Stephen home, what it is is it's this, it's a, it's a recognizing what Stephen is suffering, the price that he is paying, the sacrifice that he is making, and he is beckoning his son homeward into the kingdom of heaven. What was it like when Stephen went through the eternal sort of gates and the mist of this life and into the next, and King Jesus was standing, waiting, greeting him? Oh, that we could be met like that when we passed through the gates. If I look at Stephen, I would say, What is happening in Stephen's heart? And I think I would characterize what's happening in Stephen, Stephen's heart in all of these moments is that his heart is full of humility before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, notice something, though. Is he what we would call humble with the religious people? No. Is he what we would call nice with the religious people? No. In fact, this is like so far past social niceties. He is like ugly, in some ways disrespectful. I mean, he rebukes them in the same order that Jesus rebuked them when he said, you whitewashed sepulchers, full of dead men's bones, cleaning the outside, but the inside is full of garbage. He, he is in the same way um, uh, rebuking them. So the confidence that is in Stephen in, in terms of who he is before the religious leaders, it, it, you would almost look at it and you go, is that even humility? But notice that humility is postured before a heart posture before God. Follow me? Okay. I think I see Jesus standing here, and it's almost like I see a standing ovation. It's like this. He's welcoming Stephen home. So number one, I think I would say that Stephen's death is a coronation of life or a crowning of life for him. The second thing, and this, is a, this, is, this one's challenging, okay? You're going to have to go with me here. It's got some painful um, parts, but I think we have to look at it. Stephen's death becomes condemnation for the nation of Israel. Pastor Michael, what do you mean by that? Let me tell you. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, in verse 51, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. So for God's chosen people, the Jews, at this point in time, this is their third death or murder uh, in in the Jesus progression. Let me tell you what I mean. The first uh, one is they stood passively by while uh, John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod. They stood passively by. What's the... um, uh, there's a legal word. I'm drawing a blank. What's the legal word? Accessory. Okay. An accessory. So they were accessories in many ways to the murder of John the Baptist because they did nothing. Okay. Murder number one. The second murder would have been who? Jesus of Nazareth. Well done. The second, they, they And they crucified him. They yelled. Uh, first, they yelled when he was coming into down the Mount of Olives on that donkey. First, they yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. When he didn't save them the way they wanted to be saved and the timetable in which they wanted to be saved and in the unique way they wanted to be saved, they turned on him. And a day or two later, they yelled, crucify him. So their second murder was that they Asked for Jesus of Nazareth to be killed. And then the third murder. So notice the progression. First, they stand idly by when John the Baptist is killed and do nothing. Secondly, they ask the nation of Israel. I'm sort of making a big general characterization, but they ask that Jesus of Nazareth would be killed. And then thirdly, they actively, the religious leaders, actively pick up stones with their own hands and kill him. So you see the the progression of their hearts moving towards greater and greater hardness against God, against Jesus. And not only are, are their hearts hardening more and more and more, but now they're actually picking up stones and damaging and now killing with their own hands. Okay, so what does this mean? Let's open that just a minute. This is the last time that I can find in Scripture that the word son of man is used. Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If you want to cross-check this, you go back to the book of Daniel and the foretelling of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, he's called the Son of Man. So it's really funny to me, but there's certain biblical scholars who will go, well, Jesus never called himself God. And I go, no, 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 no. no. If you know anything about the Old Testament, when Jesus says, I am, he's actually quoting what God Almighty said to Moses at the burning bush. And then secondly, when he says, son of man, he is using the Old Testament language that says, I am the Messiah. So what's fascinating here is uh, when um, Stephen says son of man, he is using language that every one of the Jewish people would have known. Not just the religious leaders, but any Jewish person anywhere would have fully understand that when he says son of man, he is saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the, the foretold Jewish Messiah. So what is happening there in that moment, in my opinion, this is Michael's opinion, but in my opinion, is there is a last effort on behalf of God Almighty, Yahweh God, to utilize one of his prophets, one of his people, one of his deacons, Stephen, to actually evangelize or share hope and joy and invitation with the Jewish nation. The Son of Man! I see the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, standing at the right hand of God the Father. So it is saying unequivocally, Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. This Jesus who you killed is Yahweh God. And therefore, it's a final, in some ways, invitation for them to turn to or come to faith in Jesus, right? Do they? No. No. Hearts continue to harden. All right. So I want, to take, I want to cross-reference Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. I'm going to read this. This is where it gets kind of painful, but I think it's important. Luke 19, um, if you're flipping through a Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. This is Jesus talking. It's right before he was killed. Luke 19, verse 41. I still hear our pages turning. Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, who's he? Jesus. He saw the city, and he wept over it. Now, why is he going to weep over Jerusalem? Jerusalem is his chosen city. Jerusalem represents his chosen people. Jerusalem is where the temple has built in which he has dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Jerusalem is, it is his place. It has been the place of God, the space of God, the presence of God. It has been where he, he dwelt up until this point. And suddenly Jesus shows up on the scene and in, in his showing up, um, the, as he dies, this, the, the temple or the curtain in the temple of the Holy of Holies is actually torn and one of the things that Stephen says in his sermon that we didn't read the whole thing is uh, God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands. So in other words, Jesus has broken out, God, Yahweh God has broken out of the Holy of Holies and he is becoming accessible to commoners, you and I, okay? And we are now all welcomed into the Holy of Holies if we come by way of Jesus or by the blood of the Lamb. So is, does Jesus at this point know that he's going to die? Absolutely. He's fully God, but he's fully man. So he knows, and I think his heart is broken. So let's look at what he says in verse 42. And he, Jesus said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? So what would have brought them peace? Jesus. You want to have peace with God today? How do you have peace with God? You access by way of the blood of the lamb or by Jesus, and you begin to give your life to him. Not just part of it, but all of it. And I would even venture to say to the, in the parts that you have not fully given over to Jesus, I guarantee you're not going to have peace in those areas. You haven't given your finances over. Guess what? You're not going to have financial peace. You haven't given the secret things of your hearts or your, uh, the, the, what you uh, sort of go after your ambitions. If you haven't surrendered those things to God, you're not going to have peace in that area. So Jesus is saying to them, um, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, which is the Prince of Peace, King Jesus, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. Your enemies will build an embankment against you. What's he talking about? Siege warfare. It's like, it's like the Romans. That's how they would have done war. Siege warfare. The day will come. Uh, When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you, siege warfare, and hem you in on every side. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Who is God's coming to you? Jesus, so go back to where Stephen is in this moment. They're throwing these stones, Stephen is dying. Behold, I see Jesus standing, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God Almighty. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world. And suddenly, uh, the the Jews not only kill uh, Stephen, they continue to reject God Almighty and go, no, Jesus didn't come in the way I wanted him to. Jesus didn't come in the way we expected him to. Jesus didn't look like or taste like or smell like what we thought he should. And therefore, we say, absolutely not. No, I refuse you. Now, If we look at history, and I want to be careful here, but I do, I think it's important that we say it. If we look at history, in April of 70 uh, CE or AD, if you prefer, um, so this would have been like 33, 34, 35 when Jesus was crucified. So just a few years later, three days before Passover, the Roman army besieged Jerusalem. The future emperor Titus and the Roman armies destroyed it completely. Within three weeks, the Roman army broke through the first two walls of the city. There was a stubborn sort of rebel standoff that they didn't penetrate the third and thickest wall. And one of the historians, Josephus, if you read about him, actually talked about um, murder, famine, and even cannibalism happening during this siege. And within uh, five months, uh, there was a five-month siege, the Roman destroyed the city and literally took every block off the second. Temple. It's very humbling. Michael, what are you saying? I'm saying that Stephen's death was a coronation of life for him, a crowning. I'm saying that Stephen's death was another offer for the nation of Israel where a sovereign, loving, kind, gracious God that desires that none should perish and all should come to a saving faith in him offers one last time or continues to offer one last time and the people and the nation of Israel refuse and actually what Jesus prophesies or foretells, that's just a Bible word for foretells, in Luke 19 happens. A few years later, it's like oh. So if we if we looked at that um, theologically, there's a tension. Can you link purely their sin to what happened? I, you know, I'm I'm not fully sure. I think I would rather say the protection of God, um, the the gracious covering of God, um, the the uh, hedge of God was sort of lifted off the Jewish nation, and when He lifted that protection, the Roman army came in. Make sense? So now there's a tension here and I want to I want to just hold it because it's not a we can't, we can't like solve this problem it's a tension but Stephen being stoned act of judgment or act of grace Both Jerusalem being besieged 70 CE act of judgment act of grace Probably judgment, but also maybe some invitation and grace to those who hadn't believed. There's an old hymn by a guy named Frederick William Faber. And I love it. I want to read it to you because it, I think it illustrates this tension that we're in right now. Here's the last two stanzas He always wins who sides with God. Did Stephen side with God? Did he win? Did it look like he won? He always wins who side with God. To him, no chance is lost. God's will is sweetest to him when it triumphs at his cost. Now, here it is. It's like my favorite. It's so good. Ill that he blesses is our good. Did Stephen suffer ill? Was it for his good? Was it for the good of the church? (sighs) Ill that he blesses is our good, and unblessed good is ill. Unblessed good is ill, and all is right that seems most wrong if it be his sweet will. There's, there's something here to, to, to hold and um, even wrestle with. Was God's, or was Stephen's death allowed by God? Yes. Was it an act of grace? Yes. Was it an act also of judgment? Yes. Did God accomplish his best in Stephen's life? I believe so. Did God, and we're going to see it in just a minute, accomplish his best in the life of this new fledgling church? Yes. Did God offer in his kindness and mercy that the Jewish nation would turn to him in repentance and acknowledge that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah? Yes. And when they refused by an act of his very nature and character, he has to remove sort of his divine protection. He has to lift grace and his gracious hand from over them. And in so doing, the Roman army is now allowed to come in and capture. It becomes also an act of judgment. So Stephen's death is the coronation or the crowning of life uh, for him. Stephen's death becomes condemnation for the nation of Israel because they have refused again and again and again. And if you look at actually Stephen's message here, he talks about how they have consistently, they, the Jewish nation, have consistently refused Jesus. Now, we should pause here just a minute because I think that many of us in the church, Michael included, are prone to refuse Jesus when it doesn't look like we want, when it doesn't sound like we want, when the path becomes difficult, when suffering becomes imminent, when challenges mount up, when things make us sort of question God and question his goodness and we're tempted to be disappointed or bitter or hurt or distrust God. And the same risk is true for us is, are we going to be able to walk through suffering and difficulty and trials and turmoil and all of the things that will happen on planet earth? Are we going to be able to walk through it and trust in the goodness of God and that his character will ultimately see to our good, even if it's different than what we expected and his glory? In other words, is it possible that Stephen had all these dreams of getting married and having kids? Yes, yes. What if Stephen dreamed of going out and planning a church one day? What if Stephen dreamed of you fill in the blank? And did all of those uh, dreams and things that he wanted happen? No, but something better happened. He's promoted to life in glory. But it requires a humility and humble posture of heart to bow the knee, surrender your life, and trust him in the midst of circumstances you don't understand. Okay. Stephen's death was a crowning of life for him. Stephen's death was condemnation for the nation of Israel. Self-condemnation is really the way I would look at that. Um, thirdly, Stephen's death becomes a liberation for this new fledgling church. I want you to think about something with me. If the, so the church has just really, we could argue the church started, and even there's some, a passage in Exodus that sort of calls the people, that the church. You could argue the church started in Exodus, but the New Testament church has just started in the book of Acts. Um, And I I think that I would actually say what God intended to do with the New Testament church that we're going to see in the passages ahead is that they are scattered and they're sent all over the known world, all the way to Europe. Okay? I don't know that that New Testament church had the capacity to scatter and to be sent the way God intended without coming under the type of persecution they came under. In other words, if God would have shown up and said, go, I'm not sure that the church had the capacity and the faith and the maturity to actually. So let's say that this type of persecution didn't happen. What would the church probably have done? Like we all do in church. We tend to go us and them. We isolate in here. We build thicker walls. We self protect, right? We begin to go blah, oh, blah, blah. And as a church ages, even in here in America, when a church ages, they naturally stop or, or the temptation. They don't naturally, but they can uh, stop looking outward at the lost world and begin looking only inward. The risk is, as a church ages, that they get a building and the mission becomes the building or the mission becomes sort of their agenda instead of the um, empowering and infilling nature of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God on the earth. All churches face this, but I'm pretty well convinced, and this is Michael's opinion, but I'm pretty well convinced that had this type of persecution not broken out against the church, that they would not have been scattered and sent to the degree they were scattered and sent. I think they would have sort of cloistered and, uh, in fact, my dear friend, Monica, right here, she came up earlier and she says, Michael, we all like comfort. We don't like change. So the church has had all this change. They're new in Christ. They're gathering, they're meeting, they're praising God. They're worshiping Jesus, the Messiah. They don't want to change. So God comes in and he allows persecution to break out. He allows Stephen's life to be snuffed out and Stephen to be promoted to eternity. And all of a sudden, everybody runs in fear and goes all over the known world. And guess who goes with them? Jesus. Jesus. And so the church is divinely scattered and sent, liberated, I would say. And this is probably... Um, I'm, I'm a landscaper by trade, so I like plants and dirt and trees and stuff. But um, if, if we were splitting wood here today, and we took a big axe or a maul, and we had a splitting wedge, and we had a, a log right here, and we were going to split it, you would start the split, and then we would hit it again, and maybe a second time, and we would split that log. And what happened, I believe here in this moment, is Christianity is um, split from Judaism. <laughs> and God used Stephen to do it. It's amazing. So the church humbles their hearts and trusts God, even in the persecution and in the scattering. The fourth thing is, Stephen's death is salvation for Saul the Pharisee. Now, I would love, I wish I could put Saul up here on the stage for you this morning, who became known as Paul later. I wish we could chat. I can't wait to get to heaven, because I'm going to go and talk to him. But I want to know, what were you thinking when you killed Stephen? And when was it, like, when in your journey did you have this little hint of doubt that maybe me killing this man isn't a fulfillment of the Old Testament Mosaic Law? And maybe, just maybe, that I am not like loving my neighbors and the people around me and fulfilling the Old Testament Law? And is it possible? I mean, maybe, I don't know, no, 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 but is it possible that Jesus actually is the Jewish? Messiah? And was any of that, did any of that enter into this Saul's mind before he's on the road to Damascus and this big light shines down and he gets thrown off his horse and uh, he, he, Jesus says, "I, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When did it happen? I can't, I don't know, we can't know, but I am convinced that Paul, Saul, Paul, was, um, it it was the death of Stephen that became the salvation for Paul. St. Augustine actually said, if Stephen had never prayed, Saul had never preached. If Stephen had never prayed, Father, forgive them, then Saul would have never preached. Now, I don't think Stephen gets all credit for bringing Saul into the kingdom. Jesus himself shown up on the road to Damascus. We're going to read that in a few weeks. But I would bet that there were moments in Paul's life where he was so broken under the weight of having killed one of God's own that he wept and he wailed and he recognized the weight of his sin. He was penitent, he grieved, and he had to learn to appropriate the saving grace of the Lord Jesus and walk in the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus because of the weight of his sin. And I think that's probably how when Paul ultimately pens things like, I am the chief of sinners, like he's not just saying that. He believes with everything in him that he was the chief of sinners. He stood there killing God's own, the first martyr. And somehow God uses that to penetrate the hard heart of Saul. And it's somewhere in there, it becomes salvation for Saul. Two sort of side things that I just want to point out. Saul, after his conversion, speaks of the covenant of circumcision and circumcision of the heart a great deal. And who who talked about circumcision of the heart in their sermon? Stephen. I mean, I'm thinking he is super impacted by Stephen's final message. The other thing that I see is uh, Stephen um, quotes an Old Testament passage, but he says, God no longer dwells in houses made by human hands. And Paul quotes that. Uh, several, at, at, at several different points. So I am convinced that Saul's death, and I would, or excuse me, Stephen's death, became the road to life for Saul. And I would even, this is Michael's opinion, I can't prove it by scripture, but I would guess that these two guys interfaced possibly as acquaintances or friends in the synagogues, in the temples. They'd heard each other speak and debate. And so Saul actually killed someone that he knew. So the weight of this just ate at the apostle Paul, until he turned to Jesus, really Saul, until he became the Apostle Paul. So Stephen's dying becomes the seed, if you will, out of which Paul springs up. What a privilege so that this sort of phoenix can rise from the ashes of death. Can you imagine? So Stephen's death, coronation of life for him. Stephen's death, condemnation by choice for the nation of Israel. Stephen's death, liberation for the local church, the sending of the local church. Stephen's death, salvation for Saul the Pharisee. Now, let's open this a second for you and for me. With all logic at this point, how many of us are going to be martyrs? Probably not many. Could things transpire and change? They could. Who knows? That's God's business and not yours and not mine. So stop wringing your hands. Start trusting and walking by faith. But likely are many of us going to have the opportunity to be martyrs for Jesus? Probably not. So the question then is, Father, what do you want us to take from this? And I want to go to two passages because I think this is the pivot point for us. Uh, First one is Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. If you just want to jot it down, you don't want to go there, that's fine. But Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Did Stephen deny himself? Yes. Did he take up his cross? Yes. Did he follow Jesus? Yes. And in losing his life, did he find it? Yes. In losing his life, did the New Testament church find life? Yes. In losing his life, did uh, did Saul find life? Yes. I mean, it's amazing. Passage number two, Romans 12. Romans is right after the book of Acts that we're sitting in right now. So go just to the right. Romans 12, and I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 2. Guess who's writing this? Oh, there he is again. Paul is writing this, the guy that killed Stephen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Say living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm not sure that many of us are going to get to be martyrs for Jesus, but here is what I do know. You and I can take up our cross today and tomorrow and the next day, and we can actually become living sacrifices laying down our preferences, laying down our wants, serving spouses, serving kids, serving people at church, going out of our way to help a neighbor, becoming the Good Samaritan. We could go on and on and on, but we as New Testament believers are called to lay our life down, to take up our cross, to become living sacrifices, and minister through the power of the gospel of King Jesus in the here and now. And that's what begins to change communities and cities and workplaces is when a few people begin to go, "Wow, Jesus lives in me." And Jesus lives through me. And when I show up somewhere, guess who shows up with me? Jesus. And I get to love in him and love people in him and serve and spread hope and spread peace and spread joy because he is now inside of me. Stephen is doing that as he dies. So his death was life. Stephen's death was life for those who are in Christ and judgment for those who opposed Christ, I think the question for us today becomes, will we trust God in our lives when it doesn't make sense, when it doesn't look good, when it doesn't feel good, when we may even disagree with it? Let's pray. Worship team, would you come? Father, I pray that you would grip our hearts with the reality of the gospel of Jesus. Father, I pray you'd grip our hearts with the reality of the perspective shift, and Lord, I pray that you would upgrade our human perspective, Lord, where we get whiny, where we get hurt, where we get fussy, where we get disappointed, where we talk ill of each other, where we get upset with one another. Lord, I pray that you would call us deeper and further into the kingdom, and Lord, I pray that we would you would upgrade us by your Spirit to be people of great love, people of great surrender, people who take up our cross daily and follow you, and people who, Uh, trust and become living sacrifices in you, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that as we go from this place today that you would fill us with your sweet spirit. You guys have a song for us? Good. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Prayer team, if you wouldn't mind coming up. If you want special prayer for anything, healing for something, a relationship, a physical body, if you want to share something with somebody, our prayer team's gonna be up here. If you've never given your life to Jesus and want someone to pray with you to surrender your life to him, come up here and pray with us. If you're online, you'll have to put something in the chat. Let's worship the Lord together and then I'll close us in just a moment. I pray that as we go from this place, that you would allow us as your people to upgrade our perspective of the tragedies and losses and difficulties in our life to see them through the lens of the kingdom of God. Father, would you allow us to take up our place as companions and participants with you in carrying hope and joy and peace and the life and love of King Jesus. Church, as you go today, go sensing his presence, knowing his love, and responding to Him moment by moment and day by day. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.